Good morning and Merry Christmas. <laughs> uh, my name is Rich Joy. I'm serving as uh, Calvary's interim pastor. Good to be with you again this morning. This little uh, fig is going to play a significant role in what I share with you a little bit later. So I'm just going to leave it here. You can wonder why it's there for a little while. Um, there's a lot going on at Calvary. You heard in the announcements and a lot of good. God's hand is definitely on Calvary Church, and I've been so blessed to be a part of it. Just wanted to let you know that coming up next week also, in the place of our regular 1030 adult discipleship hour, uh, leadership of the church is going to give an update on transition and, uh, and some feedback from the vital church assessment that you all took some months back. So that'll happen next week. The process is moving along in the, in the search for your next uh, full-time lead pastor. You'll find in your bulletin an insert that uh, it's really important for you to take home and pray through. More than anything else, Calvary Church, we have to be praying right now through this time of transition. This guide will help you pray. Praying for the search committee, praying for the man that God is calling here uh, next to be your uh, full-time lead pastor, and for all of us as a church community. This guide is going to help you pray. We have to absolutely saturate this process in prayer because we want God's will and we want his hand to move, and we want to be able to recognize that when it happens. So be in prayer for all those things. I am really excited to jump back into Colossians this week, and I'm really excited to get to the end of the uh, message that I have for you, the thoughts at the end. Uh, and you're probably thinking, well, I get that, Pastor, because most weeks I can't wait for you to get to the end <laughs> also. I'm, I mean a different thing. I mean, the, the couple of verses that we're going to get to by the end of the thoughts I have prepared for you are going to lead us into communion. We'll be celebrating communion together. And I think they're just going to give us a fresh perspective on communion. I'm really excited to get there. Um, but between here and the end, there are some important things to hear too. In the section of Colossians that we're going through, a good chunk of it is going to feel like reminders, like, oh, Paul already said these things. The letter of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul when he was in prison in Rome to the Colossian church to correct some uh, wrong thinking that was creeping into the church. And he, in the first chapter of Colossians, we've seen he's already addressed some of these things. In the second chapter, he repeats some of them. So what, if you are um, accustomed to taking notes on the back panel of your bulletin, what you'll see there today is I've left a space for you to write down verse by verse as we go through it, this is what God is reminding me of, or this is what God is speaking to me today. So I want you to just take 30 seconds and say, God, here I am. Help me to hear what you have for me today. Help me to hear it. So say that prayer, and then we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, as we open up your word, help us to open up our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to each one of us today through it. There's so much in here, and I know I've seen you do this so many times before. You will speak to each one of us in very unique ways through your word. Help us to be good listeners today in your name and for your glory. Amen. We're going to actually look through a pretty sizable chunk. It's Colossians 2, verse 6 to verse 23, and I'm going to give it to you in chunks. And I'm going to try to let these verses almost speak for themselves. I'm going to make limited comments. That's very hard for me to do. But I'm going to try to make limited comments to move us along as a refresher on some of these things. Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. This starts out like this. 
Paul writes to the Colossian church, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul is saying right here, live your life in Christ the same way you received him. How did you receive him? By faith, through grace. It was his gift to us. So uh, everything Paul has been saying to the Colossian church up to this point is don't flip that around and turn your walk with Jesus into a walk of works, like trying to bribe God to like you more by being better and doing more. Paul is saying here, continue to walk in Jesus the same way you received him, by God's grace. Now we're actually going to come back to this passage because the next part of this uh, rooted and built up in him, that's the one I'm really excited about. That's the one we're going to come back to right before communion. So just press the pause button there, and let's go to the next one with me. Colossians 2.8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. The Bible is saying here, there is human philosophy out there. There are uh, structures and, and thoughts and systems of thought that are based on human philosophy and the elemental spiritual forces of this life. And the Bible says they're hollow. What does that mean? It means there's nothing inside. There's no truth inside. There's no real heart. That these philosophies have a structure and a form that look good. They can be deceptive. But when you open them up, and you really look at them, you find they're empty, they're hollow. The only real truth to build our lives on is truth in Christ. And he says, take every thought captive. Take these thoughts captive. Don't let them take you captive. This phrase, see that no one takes you captive, the word captive there actually is an image of a predator dragging away its prey. Let that sink in for a minute. That word captive is a picture of a predator that is dragging away its prey. And the Bible is saying here, don't let that happen to you. Take charge of your mind. Don't let your mind, your thoughts, your belief, your philosophies based on the truth of Christ, don't let them get taken away by a predator. The Bible says that Satan prowls around like a hungry lion, waiting to pounce on us and take our thoughts captive and drag them away. In 2 Corinthians um, 10.5, Paul says this, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. There's a battle for your mind. There's a battle for your mind and for your heart. When we come to Jesus, the victory is promised, but we still live in the daily battle. There's a daily battle for my mind. The philosophies of this world attack it. They want to take my thoughts captive and drag them away like a predator would drag away prey. The Bible says, reverse that, flip that around, take every thought captive and turn it into obedience for Christ. I can't let my mind get lazy. I have to immerse it in the word of God. I have to fill it with the truths of Christ so my thoughts don't get dragged away. One of the ways to do this, I love this passage because it's, so, it's, a, it's a very simple recipe for how to fill your mind. In Philippians 4.8, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. 
that passage says, fill your mind with the things of Christ. The more I fill my mind with the things of Christ, the less room there is in there for the things that don't honor him. If I don't fill my mind with what's good and noble and pure and praiseworthy and excellent and the things of Christ, I leave a lot of empty space for wrong thoughts to get in there. That passage also implies that I can be intentional. I can make decisions that make that happen. I can open up the word of God and fill my mind with it. I can fill my mind with thoughts that are good and pure and healthy and God-honoring. And the more I fill my mind with that, the less it gets filled with other things. Let's, let's move on. I'm going kind of quickly here. If you're jotting notes, write furiously in your, in your bulletin. Colossians 2, 9 through 12. You're going you're gonna to recognize this because this is the second time Paul has said these things. And I think when he repeats things, it's because, one, it's really important, and two, I usually need to hear it more than once for it to really stick. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. I'll just remind you that one of the problems in the Colossian church was they started thinking that Jesus wasn't everything, that Jesus wasn't the one true God and Savior, that he was one of many. And Paul says he is the fullness of deity, and he brings you to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. This is um, this first part of it, uh, I mean, the, not the first part, that's about the fullness, the next part. Uh, it says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. That sounds like a confusing statement. What does that really mean? that we were circumcised, but not a circumcision by human hands. Now, I'm going to try to explain this and be sensitive about the language because circumcision can get a little graphic, and I'm not planning to go there. But there's a circumcision that was part of the history of God's people, tracing back to the Old Testament, where a piece of actual flesh was removed by actual human hands. And that circumcision was a sign that that person, by faith and obedience, was following God. So Paul refers here to that and says, there's a circumcision that happens to us when we give our lives to Christ that's not done by human hands, and it's not removing a literal piece of our flesh. So what is it? Look back at this again. It says, verse 11, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Here it is. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. So that circumcision through the Old Testament was a sign for us. It was a very physical, practical sign to help us understand what happens when we come to Christ. This passage says that when you give your life to Christ, he circumcises you. He removes your whole flesh, your whole self-ruled flesh, cut off by the hand of Christ so that we can give ourselves to him in, our, in fullness. I have a part in that too. When I come to Jesus, he circumcises my flesh. He, he calls me whole and clean and holy and righteous in his sight. But I can let my mind tip back toward the things of the flesh. I can lean my body back toward the things of the flesh. I can walk in the ways of the flesh. The Bible says, if I walk in the spirit, I'll live by the spirit. If I walk in the flesh, I'll live by the flesh. The fruit of the spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I missed one in there. And the fruit of the flesh, well, <laughs> selfishness, lust, desire, self-satisfaction, pride. That's what Jesus cuts away. Fruit of the Spirit is going to grow love and joy and peace and patience in me. Hang on to that concept of fruit because it's going to tie back into that little fig I brought. And what happens when Jesus circumcises us in the flesh is that we are actually put to death. Our fleshly desires get crucified with him at the cross, and we raise up from the dead, this passage says, in Christ, in the power of Christ, that uh, having been buried with him in baptism, we were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We die to self, we're alive in Christ. Verses 13 and 15, moving on. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. I'm going to stop right here because that verse should sound really familiar if you were here with me on my first day back in September. The very first Sunday in September when I started with you, I started with Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And that passage started with these same words, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and God made us alive in Christ. Please make me feel really good about myself right now. Does anyone remember me saying that? Yes, a couple of you. Great, thank you. And I tried to make the point that day that there's a big difference in how we think here, that if I think I was dead and Jesus made me alive, there's a big difference between that and thinking I was bad and Jesus made me good. That's dangerous thinking. So I'm going to just repeat a little bit of it from that first Sunday I was with you. The problem with I was bad and Jesus made me good is it implies that I can make myself a little bit better and that there are levels of goodness. It leads to comparison. So I can look around the room and say, you were bad, you were bad, I wasn't as bad as you, you were bad, you were worse, and we, and we can make levels of goodness and badness and say, I was bad, but I wasn't so bad. I was bad, but I wasn't the worst, I wasn't a, um, the worst of sinners. And then I can tell myself, I was bad, but I was actually pretty good. And Jesus just took me in my pretty goodness, and he's making me better. That's wrong thinking. The Bible's very clear that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And you can't compare levels of dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're dead. You're not more dead. You're not less dead. We're all dead in our transgressions. And Jesus makes us alive in Christ. I know I was repeating that from my first Sunday with you, but the truth is I have found in my thinking and in Christian thinking in general, if we don't guard against that, we slip back into thinking that I can be good and better to earn God's favor, not I was totally and completely dependent on the gift of his grace in my life. So you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Some versions say, having canceled the written code, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I'm going to stop there for a moment, too, while we keep that scripture up. That line is so power-packed. 
that God canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Legal, it's like a legal document stood against us, accusing us. What was that? It's talking about the law. Let's just simplify the law down to the Ten Commandments. Let's just use that for um, explanation to help our thinking. What this is saying is that God gave us the Ten Commandments so that we would know what was right and what was wrong. Those commandments don't create sin. They make me aware of what's right. And when I violate that, I know I've been wrong. So the law points out my sin. It doesn't create my sin. It works like this. One of those Ten Commandments says, don't give false testimony. Don't lie. Tell the truth. When I read that, don't lie, tell the truth, now I know that lying is wrong and telling the truth is right. So when I lie, I know I've broken the law. I have transgressed. I've sinned. The law points that sin out. It's like if you're walking in some unknown area and you come across a big piece of property and there's a sign on it that says, private property, do not trespass. As soon as you read that sign, you know that crossing into that property is wrong. You have just broken the law on that sign. If you come to a piece of property and there's no sign, you don't know whether it's right or wrong to step onto that property. That law makes us aware of our sin. And then in the same sense, it keeps a record. Because every time I've broken the law, every time I've lied or misrepresented myself, Every time I've had desires I shouldn't or spoken things I shouldn't, words have come out of my mouth that I know are wrong. Every time I've committed some act that I know is wrong because the law has pointed out to me what right behavior is, it's like there's a written record now on that law of all the times I've transgressed it. And I cannot wipe that out. I can't go back and cross them off. I can't erase them. I can't do enough good to cancel them out. I can't pretend they're not there. That document exists. And this passage says that when Jesus died on the cross, he took that document and he nailed it to the cross with Jesus and he said, canceled, done, debt paid. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. This passage says it was like a legal document and you were legally forgiven of that debt in God's sight. We don't owe him for it. We don't owe him. And then having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I would like to some morning spend the entire, my entire 30 minutes or so on that picture. This is incredible what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He didn't die in weakness. He died in strength. The Bible said that um, Satan would bruise his heel, but he would crush Satan's head. Jesus died with overwhelming force. He completely conquered sin and death. And what this says is when he rose from the dead, through his death on the cross and rising from the dead, that he completely disarmed the powers and authorities that stood against him. And he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. This is a picture, many of you may already know what this is a picture of. Uh, in those days when a Roman general conquered an enemy force, he would bring the captives back to his city, strip them of their uniforms, strip them of their weapons, and march them like a prison gang through the streets of the city while the, the residents of the city would come out and cheer and, pr and, and praise like it was a parade. 
He would completely disarm and humiliate his enemies and parade them around and see, so everyone could see, these no longer have any power over you. That's the picture Paul is using here. He says, here's what Jesus did. He went into the house of our enemy. He completely triumphed, stripped them of their weapons, stripped them of their uniform, and he paraded them in front of us to say, look, they have no power anymore. Only what power we'll give them and let them have. They've been completely disarmed. What a picture. Colossians 2, verses 16 through 19, as we continue moving. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great deal about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. The first part of that says, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. I read that and said, what's a new moon celebration doing in there? That sounds really out there to me. And Paul is saying, don't let anybody judge you when you decide how you are going, you're going to observe certain holidays. And I had to come to the truth of this for us today, Christians today, and I'm not just talking about here at Calvary Church, but Christians today in America. We disagree on what kinds of observances we're going to participate in. We've got one coming up really soon. Here are some things we disagree on. Does a Christian participate in Halloween, which seems to me to get more and more evil and dark every year? What about Santa Claus? What about the Easter Bunny? We disagree on these things. What Paul is saying here is we're going to disagree at what level we're going to observe certain traditions. The problem isn't that we're going to disagree. What's the problem in this line? Is that we judge each other when we disagree. We point the finger and say, I can't believe you do that. I can't believe you let your kids do that. Paul says, don't judge each other in this. There are some things we're going to disagree on. And the Colossians were doing that too. At the end of this, he says that people who argue and get puffed up and try to press their case have lost connection with the head from the whole, whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. The head is Jesus. We're the body. And if we get disconnected from the head and the body, we wither, we die. Um, not quite there yet, but it has something to do with that fig tree. I have fig trees that are about this big. I have fig trees that are this big. I love growing fig trees. If I cut a branch off one of those trees, I almost did. I almost cut one off to bring it in here. If I cut a branch off one of those trees, what's going to happen to it? It's going to wither and die. It cannot survive disconnected from that tree. Any plant, take any plant. If you cut a branch off of it, that branch is going to die. It cannot survive disconnected from that tree. Paul is saying the same thing here. If we go off on our own with our own thoughts, if we let our thoughts get taken captive and a, and a predator drags away our thoughts like dead prey and we get disconnected from the vine, the one who gives us life, 
We're going to wither. We're going to shrivel. We have to be on our guard. Colossians 2, 20 through 23. Since you died with Christ to the elemental, elemental spiritual forces of this world, why? As though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. With their self-imposed worship, their false humidity, and their humidity, <laughs> their humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. When we uh, turn our church experience into rules, we've created religion. Religion is rules. Religion is structure that helps us try to reach God, like building the Tower of Babel. Let's see how close we can get to God. Religion, any religion, I believe this is my opinion, any religion that is not true faith in Jesus Christ becomes a list of rules and regulations and to-dos that I impose into my life to try to make me more acceptable to God. And the Bible is saying here, do not turn your faith into a list of rules. How you receive Jesus by grace, continue to walk in him, stay connected to him, and you'll grow. That's what all these verses sum up to say. And we're going to loop back around to that first one I mentioned, but before we do, just take a moment and reflect. If you've been jotting notes in your bulletin, if you've just been listening, what has God said to you so far? Is there something in here that he's brought back to your mind from our first few weeks in Colossians? Like, oh yeah, don't forget that. Oh, I heard that one before. That's worth paying attention to again. A new thought, an inspiration, a conviction, a reminder. Have you jotted anything down so far? Have you got your ears open and your heart open to the Holy Spirit? Because I believe God is speaking. All right, let's move on. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, this is where we started. This whole section started with this. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, in faith and in grace. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Rooted and built up in Jesus. I want to spend a few minutes really thinking about what it means to be rooted in Jesus and built up in Jesus, because it's very different from walking under my own strength. I, um, I, lo- I mentioned I love growing things. Uh, I love taking plants and, and splitting them and repotting them and rooting things and growing them. That's why you know, I mentioned fig trees a couple times. I love my garden. I love to see things grow. I love the principles of how things grow. And what I've discovered over the years of getting my hands in the soil and, and helping things grow and being a part of God's creation is there are so many powerful spiritual truths pictured in how things grow. I've had so many aha moments out in my garden. I, and one of them I'm going to share with you in a little bit, but I want, to, I want to help you get there with me. And it has to do with this idea of rooting. So years ago, I don't even remember how many, 10 or 15 years ago, Heidi and I went out to California, and part of our trip, we toured uh, Sonoma and Napa Valley, where all the grapes are grown that get turned into the California, most of the, most of the California wines. Now, this is not a message on whether you should or shouldn't drink wine. 
That's going to be for another day. This is a message on how things grow and what we can learn from how they grow. I was fascinated taking the tour of these um, vineyards and what the vine dressers do to produce healthy grapes. And the first thing I noticed was they had um, big, old, gnarly grapevines. I want to show you a picture one. I took this picture. This is not from a book. This was uh, off my phone. This is a, this is a grapevine in, uh, in one of the vineyards in California. Look at this thing. And what you'll notice if you, if you look closely at the bigger picture is um, it's got this big, gnarly, thick trunk. And the, the vines that the grapes are on are thin. They're kind of spindly. And the, these are new. And they've been grafted into this old trunk. And what I learned when I was out there is the best grapes come from the oldest vines. So I wanted to call these vines. This is actually called the vine or the rootstock or the trunk. And these are the branches. So the best grapes come from branches that have been grafted into an old vine. The old vines produce the best grapes. It's fascinating to understand why that is. It's all about the roots, mostly about the roots. Because the old vines have lived so long, they produce great roots. Let me show you. I did not take this picture. Let me show you the next one. This is a picture of roots. So these are vines up here. And the oldest vines have roots that go wide and deep. Look how deep these roots are. You could see if there was a, a vine that wasn't as old, the roots don't go as deep. They're not as thick. They're not as wide. The value of roots that go deep is they go through layers of soil. Can you see how the soil changes in this picture? Different minerals, different layers of soil. So the roots are bringing up water, but they're also bringing up different minerals from the different layers, different nutrients from the different layers of soil. The best grapes come from vines that have deep and wide roots. The best fruit is produced by an old vine that has deep roots. Now you hold that concept in your mind and listen to this verse from John 15, 5. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whose roots go deeper than his? We produce fruit when we stay connected to Jesus as the vine because he's that huge trunk that's been here forever. The oldest vines, the oldest, oh, it's not there anymore. The oldest vines, the oldest trunks are the ones that produce the best fruit. And the, they have the most extensive root system. Jesus said, I'm the vine. He's eternal. He's been a vine forever. His roots are massive. Me? I'm a little branch that gets grafted in, but I can produce great fruit if I stay connected to that vine. Isn't that amazing? My figs bear fruit. My fig trees bear fruit. I got so much fruit this past summer, so many figs. Not because they try harder. Not because my fig trees try harder than someone else's fig trees. My fig trees don't stand in their pots and say, bear fruit, bear fruit, I got to bear fruit. I got to really work at bearing fruit. Why do they bear fruit? Because the branches are connected to the trunk, and the trunk is connected to the roots that are holding it up in the soil and drawing up all those nutrients. They grow fruit because they're connected. That's a true spiritual principle for us. You bear fruit in your life if you stay connected to that vine, Jesus, whose roots are eternal. And we've been grafted in. 
we've been grafted in. Romans eleven seventeen says this, that if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root. I only grabbed that one verse from there. This, parts of this chapter talk about us being grafted in as wild shoots. We're not natural shoots. To help us understand that, I want to show you the picture of an olive tree with natural shoots. Um, again, I did not take this picture myself. I've just grabbed it online. This is an old, old olive tree, an old trunk. And out of it is just growing natural shoots. They just grew up because life was still in this, and new shoots grew up. These are natural. They just grew out of it. This passage says if you came to Jesus Christ as a Gentile, as a non-believer, and you came to Jesus Christ being outside of his family, and you're growing up as an olive shoot in him, you weren't a natural shoot. You were grafted in. This is a beautiful picture, this grafting. This is where I could, couldn't wait to get to, is to talk to you about grafting and what this means. When you graft a plant, you're taking a branch and a trunk, a rootstock, a vine, and you're fusing them together. So this branch that didn't come from this trunk originally, it came from somewhere else, gets grafted in and becomes a part of that trunk and draws its life and its nutrients from that trunk. The Bible says we've been grafted in to Jesus. We didn't grow out of him naturally. We've been fused in by a process of grafting. And here's where I want to bring this in. Because I had, I had an aha moment a couple summers ago that took my breath away on this idea of grafting. Um, I like to root my fig trees. Uh, there are a variety of ways to root them. This is a tree, uh, this little thing, I rooted it just this summer clipped off from a branch, stuck it in a glass of water until it started to form roots. And when it had enough of a root structure, I put it in this little pot. This little plant will grow as long as I water it and take care of it. It's already bigger from when I first put it in. One just like this, I'll show you. I gave it to a friend, um, just so you can see, I'll show the next picture. This is me, and I'm in the picture so you can get the proportion, that, how big this fig tree is. This fig tree started just like this. That fig tree, three years ago, I clipped a little branch off a tree. I put it in water till it got roots. And when it got big enough, I put it in a pot like this and then a bigger and bigger pot. And now it's this big. That tree didn't say, oh, I have to try to grow. It grew because it stayed connected, just like we do. But that was, that was just rooted. There are a couple of different ways to root. Uh, one of them is it's really, it's, it's fascinating, it's kind of strange and unusual, but it was where I got my grafting aha moment. It's called air rooting. You can take that picture down now if you want. I don't want everybody looking at, at me up there. <laughs> I want you looking at the real me. So there's this um, way to create roots in a branch that you can make into a plant called air rooting. What you do is you take a healthy fig tree like the one I just showed you, and a branch that's about pencil thick, you take a sharp knife and cut through the branch on an angle about two-thirds of the way through, but you leave it connected. You don't cut it all the way off. And then you know those little plastic clippy things that hold your bag tight? You take something just like that, and you stick it in the slot between the two pieces you just cut so they can't heal and fuse black back together. Keeps them apart. You get some moss, soak it in water, wrap it in plastic, and you let it sit like that in the air. And after about a month or so, because that branch can't connect back, it develops roots. It's called air rooting. It's very much like grafting. The difference with grafting is 
when you cut that branch, you don't stick the plastic thing in between. You let it join back up. So if I were going to graft that fig tree branch, I cut it completely off. And then I'd go to a trunk, a tree, a vine stock, a root stock, and I would cut that and fuse them together, the cut spot on the tree and the cut spot on the branch get fused together, and the branch gets grafted in. It takes on life from the trunk. Now, that's when I had this. I was air grafting three or four branches on a fig tree, and I was thinking, uh, air rooting, and I was thinking about grafting, and I went, wow. We're grafted in, at, in Christ, but in order to be grafted, he had to be cut, and I had to be cut, and we were joined together by our woundedness. That's profound to me. That's profound to me. Jesus would cut. He was wounded. He went to the cross. He was nailed. He was beaten. He was whipped. He bled. He died. He, a wound was created. And I come to him wounded. My, my greatest wound is my, my sin, my broken spirit. And if I'll take my woundedness and meet Jesus in his woundedness, that's where we get grafted together. I've got to come to him in my wounded place. That's profound to me. It was, I almost cried in my garden. I had such a, a profound moment of what it means to be grafted in to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to go right now into communion. And you're going to hold in your hand those two elements. If you didn't get one on the way in, uh, put your hand up and we'll have an usher or an elder bring you uh, a cup. And then I'm going to ask the band to start coming up as, um, as you're getting ready. So this is what I want you to be thinking about in this moment. that Jesus meets us in our place of woundedness, but he meets us there by his woundedness. If you take a branch and don't cut it, and you tie it to a trunk and don't cut the trunk, if there's no wound, no graft, no fusion, the branch will die, the trunk will go on. You have to cut the trunk. You have to cut the branch. You have to wound them both for that grafting to happen. The Bible's very clear that we have been grafted into Christ, and he meets us at our woundedness. Oh, I put my Bible away. I want to read scriptures that we don't usually read at communion time. I want to read Isaiah 53. Now that you have that concept in your head, I'm going to read Isaiah 53, just the first five verses. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Speaking about Jesus now. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem." Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, 
and by his wounds we are healed. So take a moment while you're holding your communion cup and meet Jesus in that place. Just close your eyes if you need to. And, um, and remember his woundedness. Imagine it in your mind. The nails in his hands, the nails in his feet, the bruises on his body. And then imagine in your mind your woundedness. And I said, my, my deepest wound is my broken spirit and my sinfulness. And Jesus meets me there. But we have other wounds. Wounds to your mind, wounds to your heart, wounds to your emotions, wounds to your life. Jesus will meet you in your woundedness. That's how we get grafted in. You would peel the top off of your cup that holds the wafer. It was his body that was wounded, like that vine. It was his body that got cut. I meet him, and he meets me in his place of woundedness. The Apostle Paul said that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, eat this in remembrance of me. Give a word of thanks in your heart and eat this in remembrance of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your wounded body. if you would open your cup in the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks he said drink this in remembrance of me he shed his blood from real wounds so that we can be healed from our wounds the Bible says by his wounds we've been healed let's meet him in our woundedness we drink this cup today and we remember you Jesus Thank you, Lord, for your gift of grace and love and mercy on us. May we walk in that in the same way we've received it. In your name, amen.